I want to ask you a couple questions as we get started just to maybe make you think a little bit about your own life and experiences that you've had with followers of Jesus and your own experience in following Jesus. What is it that makes a Christian compelling to others? When you think about the life of Jesus himself, which we're meant to, to emulate, we're being formed into his image, what was it that made Jesus so compelling to people? As I thought about that idea of being compelled, I, I, I went back to different nights while I'm laying in my bed. Maybe you've had this experience, and, and uh, I do the poor thing most of the time of having my phone in my bed. That's, that's not a good habit to have. But you're there in the dark, and you got your phone, and all of a sudden, a bug or multiple bugs start swarming you. Uh, they're attracted to not you necessarily, but the light that you're holding there in your hand. Bugs are attracted to light. Light is attractive to people. And, and in, the, in the New Testament, Jesus' own teaching, he speaks of this, that, that I'm the light of the world, he says, meaning I am to draw attention to myself, attract people. And then he says, you're the light of the world. And you're called to be that person that draws people in, that makes Christianity compelling. And so as you think about what made Christ compelling, what, what comes to mind? We'll open it up. Let's open it up. What comes to mind when you think, what made Christ so compelling to people? Redemption. redemption. He offered redemption, a message of redemption, and redemption itself. Good. What else? Somebody say something? Hope. Somebody said hope. I don't know who said it, but hope. His love. Selflessness. We're rolling now. Yeah, humility. Good. Yeah, truth. Yeah, I, I love that idea. Humility and truth. Jesus spoke with authority, right? Everybody recognized that. Uh, they said, man, this guy speaks with authority, but he did so with humility. He did so with love, with, with selflessness. And so these are the qualities that we're called to as well. This is what would make us compelling and following Jesus compelling to others. It's what our desire should be, and it's actually what we're going to be focusing on really for the remainder of the fall up until we bump into uh, the, the Advent season and Christmas holidays. How, how do we do good? How do we shine as lights in a dark world? That's the questions we're going to be answering. And uh, there's going to be opportunities uh, for us to continue to do that as we have every year. We're going to get canned fruit together for people upping people in the food pantry. We're going to do some things that are going to show love to our neighbors right here in our own neighborhood that we, we reside in as a church. Uh, we're going to be working with the Pregnancy Resource Center. Katie, Katie has some things she's going to share with us next week, ways that we can be a blessing to them. And so, yeah, there's things that we can do there, but the teaching that we're going to find rolling forward in Titus uh, will help us because Paul is counting on Titus and the Christians who are there on the island of Crete to do just that same thing that we're called to do. He wanted Titus and the Christians there on the island of Crete to stand out like a sore thumb in contrast to the lazy, remember this was the description from last week, the, the evil beasts and the gluttons that were there on Crete. The Christians were to be different. He wanted the Cretans to see that Jesus can make a difference in your life. But before I get too far ahead of myself, let me pull back, hit the brakes, and review our passage today within its context. So far, Titus has, has proved to be like a snowball rolling down a hill. 
It's, it's adding things in. It's, it's even gaining some speed and momentum. And so in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, you'll remember we spent a couple different weeks on this uh, talking about the qualifications that are required for an elder, those who would shepherd and have oversight in the life of a church. And the conclusion uh, was that, that in the section, the character is stressed, but also they have to have the ability to, to refute false teachers, they have to know the truth well enough that they can speak against the false teachers. And that bled right into what we talked about last week in chapter 1, verse 10 through 16. Uh, the island of Crete, these new churches had already been infiltrated with false teachers. And so he says, Titus, you've got to get to work silencing them. You've got to rebuke them sharply for their false teaching because they're leading people astray. They're causing damage to the faith of others. And our conclusion was that gospel drift is a very real danger. And we have to work tirelessly as, as individuals and as a church to make sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ himself is central to who we are in our lives. And in last week's message, we also noted that Paul not only condemned the character of the Cretans, again, the lazy gluttons, the evil beast, but he also condemned the character and the behavior and the lifestyle of the false teachers uh, who were there within the church. And he concluded this way in chapter 1. He said, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. It, re repeating that mantra that we've repeated time and time again, bad theology, bad belief, leads to bad behavior, leads to bad actions. But you can flip that around too. And that's exactly what Paul does as we move into chapter two. He, he flips that around because good theology or, or sound theology leads to good behavior. So if I can borrow a little bit more from last week where he says, to the pure, all things are pure. In other words, when, when I have a pure heart, my motives are pure, what's produced? Pure, good works like Christ produced in his own life. And so with, with that, that snowball still rolling, Paul offers a conjunction to begin chapter 2. But, notice that, but. He's contrasting with the false teachers and their lifestyle. So, so Titus, instead of, of doing what the false teachers were doing, instead of living the way that they're living, which is ruining the churches and damaging the faith of others within those churches, make sure, Titus, that you're teaching what is consistent with sound doctrine, right theology. Now, before we break that down, understand that, that this would not only apply to Titus, but any elders who would come after Titus, any, any shepherds who are called to lead the church, they must lead with sound doctrine, it's a snippet here of a pastor's job description, if you will. And so what does Paul mean when he says sound doctrine? Well, well doctrine is just a, a fancy way of saying teaching. A doctrine is, in a sense, kind of a collection of teaching that exists there. He's essentially saying to Titus, teach or proclaim only the teaching that is sound. Well, what do we mean by sound? To say something is sound is to say that it's, it's healthy, it's healthy. The, the Greek word here is uh, hygienio, and, and it's a word that we get our word hygiene from, which means what? To be pure, to be clean, to be sound. We, we would say it this way. You hear this in certain circles. That person is of a sound mind. 
In other words, they, they've got it together, their mentality, they're focused, they're sound in their thinking. And so that's what we mean when we say they have to have sound teaching and doctrine. It's healthy doctrine. According to Paul, there's, there's healthy doctrine and there's non-healthy doctrine. Unhealthy doctrine uh, leads to the way of the false teachers and it leads to people who are in the churches who are unhealthy and it leads to churches that are unhealthy. But healthy, sound doctrine will lead to healthy and vibrant churches. Healthy and vibrant disciples of Jesus. And so my job as your pastor, the job of any pastor, any additional elders that we would add is to make sure that the doctrine we teach is sound, it's healthy. I like how how Paul puts this in 2 Timothy, and you can, you can flip over there if you'd like to 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's just one book back from Titus. 2 Timothy 2 in verse 15 helps us to understand this a little bit better when we think of what sound doctrine is. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. False teachers wrongly handle the Bible, but faithful teachers rightly handle the Bible. Now, I grew up memorizing this verse in the King James. Uh, this is the verse that Awana comes from. For those of you who are familiar with our Awana clubs, approved workmen are not ashamed. You say, that's a really funny name. Well, this is where it comes from, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. And uh, in, in the King James Version, uh, their, their, their translation is quite different. And I'll explain that in a moment. But what they say is that you're, you're rightly dividing the word of truth. To rightly divide the word of truth. You see, what those translators did is they took what Paul says here literally. Because the word that's used here, this participle that we see, it, it means to cut it straight. It's a word used in the ancient times of a craftsman who was cutting a, a line, a farmer plowing a furrow, a mason setting a straight line, a workman building a road. They would say he's, he's cutting it straight, he's making it straight, all of which I'm not very good at. But you can understand where, where metaphorically in the figure of speech, what it means is that, that you, you're, you're careful in the task you're performing. You're doing it right. You're handling it with care. Uh, last Saturday, not, not yesterday in the rain, but last Saturday, because of all the rain we had at the end of last week, uh, Bruce and me uh, were mowing out here. And... Uh, uh, we, were, we were mowing our regular stuff, but we were also needing to get the field, start cutting it for ruck and run, for all the parking that goes on out here. And uh, I was realizing while I was on the mower zipping around that, that he didn't really know what we mowed in the field. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to go over here. I'm going I'm to break off of the rural, normal yard. And I'm going to cut some, cut some lines through the field so he can see the boundaries. And so I did it. I jumped over here and I, I took off and I got to the west side of the property and I turned that mower around and that that line could not have been any more crooked. I mean, it looked like a two-year-old had been on that mower. I, I look back, I was like so ashamed. I was hoping he wouldn't even come up there. And you can actually see uh, his cuts now and how crooked they are uh, because of my first cut. So I, I came back at it. I said, I've got to make this right. And so I, I came back at it. I cut to this side. It took like three tries back and forth to even make it look decent. 
And so I tell you that in hopes that I can cut straight the word of God uh, for you better than I can cut the yard and the field out here uh, because it was quite embarrassing for me. But, but the point, the point when it, when it comes to being sound in our doctrine, we do not get to assign meaning to what the scripture says. Our job is to mine the intent and the meaning that God has already set in the scriptures. Whether we're reading in the Gospels, whether we're reading in the book of Titus or in the Old Testament, we, we don't get to declare, well, this is what it means. We have to mine out to understand what it means. And so the, the idea that, that you see occasionally where you know, you'll be in a group and somebody will say, hey, let's read this passage of scripture, and then they, they say after the passage of scripture, what does this mean to you? Well, that's, that's really just a bogus question. Because it, it doesn't matter what that means to you. What matters is what does God mean to say to you in that particular text. That's where we begin to get off from sound doctrine. We're, we're misunderstanding the purpose of Scripture. It's God revealing himself to us. It's not that we get to read into it. It's what he says from it that matters the most. And uh, by the way, one of those one of those approaches is very attractive to the American way of life. Uh, we love to read into and derive that meaning from, uh, from our own personal experiences. But, but let me give you a quick example of this, even from my own, my own past experiences. My sophomore year at, uh, at, at college, going through Bible college, uh, me and some friends had gotten together. We had done a couple of like workbook style studies together. We were super spiritual, you know, in addition to all these things. And so, so we did one, uh, Experiencing God. Many of you have probably heard of that one by Henry Blackaby. That was a very popular one. We did another one, The Mind of Christ. And then we thought, you know what? We understand this Bible well enough. Let's just, let's just go through a book of the Bible together. And so we picked Colossians. So we would meet every Thursday night, Tuesday night, something like that. And we would read a section and we would, we would wax eloquent and talk about it with all of our wise knowledge. But I remember specifically coming to chapter 2 and verse 21 in Colossians. And here's what it says, Colossians 2 verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch. And I remember looking at that and, and my mind immediately began to spin. You know, there's a lot of things that we shouldn't handle. And there's a lot of things that we shouldn't taste. And there's a lot of things that we shouldn't touch. And, and so I began to, to, to spin that and talk about all the places we shouldn't go and all the things we shouldn't do and the, maybe the people we shouldn't be around. And, and I began to just build all of the application I could off of those particular commands that are there in Colossians 2 and verse 21. Well, uh, probably about a decade later, I was pastoring here and we were moving through the book of Colossians. It was our study. And uh, man, that was a, I, I really enjoyed the study in Colossians. Some of you were here for that. It was just a great Christ-centered book. And we came to that verse, and I remember reading that verse in, it, in its context and, and thinking back to that moment. And, and the problem was, man, I got it all wrong. When Paul says, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, guess who he's quoting? The false teachers in Colossae. <laughs> he's giving their message. 
And he's saying, this, this is what you're not supposed to be saying, not supposed to be doing, but man, I spun that sucker and I said, yep, this is it right here. This is the message that we're to convey. And I can, I can laugh about that now. I mean, I was a sophomore in college at the time. I had very little knowledge in that. Uh, but what, what does sadden me is that there are teachers, there are pastors who continue to do that very thing in misusing the word of God mishandling, not, not correctly dividing the word as we're called to divide it. And what I learned even in that moment and as a pastor is, is when, I, when, I, when I misuse the word, when I don't cut it straight, it's not only that I'm saying things that are wrong, but I'm teaching other people to read it wrongly as well. And, and I look back on that, and, and I've shared, especially as we were in the, the Galatians today, I've shared some of my past. I know exactly where that mentality of, hey, you shouldn't touch that, you shouldn't taste that, you shouldn't do that came from. It came from years of, of me being taught that. Uh, that. That was the background. It was so ingrained in me. I looked for it wherever I could. I was trying to find it, and I found it, and I thought, yeah, I can talk about this for a while. And so we have to be very careful as we handle God's word and the truth that we find. So Paul personally challenges Titus to make sure that what he teaches is sound. Make sure it's sound, Titus. But there's a good question to ask here. As a matter of fact, uh, Brooke's not here today, but uh, we had Yam at our house on Wednesday and uh, she came in and she's like, so how was your day? What did you do? And I said, well, I worked on Sunday sermon today. And she said, well, what's it about? So I told her, well, it's about teaching what's sound and having sound doctrine. And she says, well, well, well how, do I, how do I know what you teach is sound? <laughs> and I said, well, good. That's one of the questions I have in the sermon. And that's the question now. How do you know? How are you to discern what's sound and what's unsound? Well, I would challenge you first. You have to be like the Bereans that Paul mentions in Acts 17. You remember the Bereans were the people that Paul came in and he began to teach them Truths from the Old Testament that show that Christ was the Messiah that had been talked about through the Old Testament. And uh, what did they do? They didn't take him at face value and say, yeah, that's right. No, they went home and they looked at the scriptures themselves. And they looked at what he, what he said in comparison to what they had been taught and what they see in the text. And Paul says, man, they're more noble. They're more noble for that task because they, they dug into the word of God. You see, the key element for rightly handling the Bible is going back to the Word of God. Does what this teacher is saying or this author has written down, does it, does it really mesh with what Jesus taught in the Gospels? Does it really connect and, and line up with what Paul and Peter taught in the New Testament, with what we find even in the Old Testament? We ask those questions. And I just want to say this. The, the truth is, most of you are here and you've stayed because you do trust you, you've trusted my ability to accurately teach what we find in this incredibly glorious book. And, and I, I don't take that lightly. Thank you for trusting me with that. Uh, but, but please understand, out of all of the, the pastoral responsibilities I have, this is the one that I take the most seriously. And, and maybe that's not right. Maybe there's other tasks that I should take more seriously. But I do not want to mishandle what God has said and stand here and say, thus says the Lord when he says, I didn't say that. And so we want 
to handle God's word correctly. You know what another good test is, is this. Um, does it keep Jesus central? Is the message that, that they're teaching keeping Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ central? Because if there's, if there's drift, as we talked about last week, be careful. Be careful. And then let me, let me just combine a couple of points here. Does the teaching result in consistently good behavior and actions? In other words, what's the given result of the message? Um, does it promote spiritual health in, in the person who's teaching it? Does it promote spiritual health in the people that are listening to it? There should be a positive outcome to the truth of God's word as it connects with believers. I'd kind of liken it to a math equation. I, I, I did not like math equations in, in school because, you know, you, you work the equation. Sometimes it takes like 10 minutes to move through one of those equations. You get to the end. And the cool thing about math is you can take your answer and you can plug it back in at the top and you can check. And every time I would do that, I would plug it back in. It was wrong. And I'd be like, man, I just wasted 10 minutes of my life and trying to figure out then where I went wrong, what happened in that process. Well, being a Christian is like that and, and taking in truth is like that because the outcome of our lives should prove the truth of the answer in the equation that we find in Jesus Christ. The fruit of the Spirit should be evident as a result of the message. This is what you see he's, he's already talked about. What's the fruit and the product of the false teachers? It's evil. It's wickedness. It has nothing to do with the fruit of the Spirit. It's the opposite of those things. And I just want to say on this point, I, I rejoice in the grace that Christ has shown to this church. I rejoice that, that I can stand here and say this church is a, is a healthy church and I, I believe we're healthy because we have worked hard to keep the gospel of Jesus central to who we are and to what we're doing. And that, that fosters a unity because it's not about all these peripheral things. We don't come together about all the peripheral things, in my opinion here, in your opinion there. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it fosters a, a humility in us as well because we're keeping the gospel central. There's no room for pride there. When we're reminded every week that, like, like John said, we're just We're sinners. We screw up, but we come back to the cross this morning. I, I had that prayer that the songs were just beautiful for me because I was just thinking back on this week of, of all the ways in which I failed, bad attitudes that I carried through the week. To what end? But you know what? In that one moment, I could say, Father, forgive me for that. And I'm going to move beyond that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I also love... And, and see health in, in this church because there's such a desire here for more of God's word. Some of these messages I preached have been really long. <laughs> you know, and I don't, I don't really realize that until like I, I'll see, you know, the post or something on you and I'm like, man, 50 minutes, whoa. But there's a hunger for the word. There's a hunger for what's true and what's right. That isn't to say that we don't have work to do. We've arrived. We, we have plenty of work to do. We're going to see that as this, this letter continues to unfold. But, but I do want to say that my intention is to continue to proclaim sound doctrine week in and week out, in season, out of season, 
We'll continue to open this book. We'll read a section of the book. We'll expound what's in that section. Uh, We'll trust that the Spirit desires for us to glean and move us to repentance and humility and and that He's going to take that truth and He's going to apply it into our lives in such a way that it results in us looking more like Jesus where, where addictions can be put to death and reshaping of attitudes and an increasing of faith in our own lives, an increasing of love and service towards other people, and even, therefore, enabling us to teach others as well and disciple them and help them to understand what it is to follow Jesus. And this life change brought about by sound doctrine is what lays the foundation for the next nine verses. It's why Jordan had to read more than I was going to read. Because the next nine verses, Paul calls believers to be lights in darkness. He calls them to be salt in a decaying world. The evil, the detestable, the lazy gluttons on Crete desperately needed to see that Jesus can change a person's life. How true is that in our own community? How true is that in our own families? People desperately need to see that there's hope. People are looking for it everywhere they can. And so Paul moves through a list that captures various aspects of life, describes the character, the fruit that should be present in in certain characteristics of life for any of those who possess the Holy Spirit. These are the characters... That, that sound teaching produces in a follower of Jesus. And so he addresses older men in chapter in verse 2. He addresses older women in verse 3. Younger women in, in verses 4 and 5. Younger men in verse 6. Titus himself in verses 7 and 8. He doesn't escape. And then in verse 9 he addresses bond servants or slaves or employees and, and what that looks like in a workplace. You see, saying you're a follower of Jesus means that Jesus should affect your day-to-day life. It isn't just a, hey, i got to look like Jesus for the two hours I gather with, with his people at church. No, it's, it, it should affect us in our day-to-day life. That's what we're called to because Jesus brings about radical change, moral, ethical change. And the gospel drift and false teachers, they get that mixed up. They put the cart before the horse. It's about your works. It's about what you do. And then, yeah, we'll put, Jesus can just push you from behind. Or sometimes they put the cart next to the horse, and I don't know how that works. So Jesus walks alongside you while you're pushing it. I don't know. It's Jesus plus whatever you need to do. Friends, and I don't mean any disrespect, Jesus is the horse. And we're the cart that he's dragging by his grace. It's not about what we do it's about what he has done and we can faithfully follow him because he brings about change in our lives Jesus pulls us through this life and that's exactly what verses 11 and 12 again we go to him every week because the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It trains us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. It's the work of Christ, and it's the work of Christ alone. And that is good news, because if you've ever tried to do it on your own, it doesn't work.
And it puts you in a cycle of hopelessness when you're trying to push the cart. But when Jesus is there with new life, there's our hope, there's our good news. Another question as we, we, we bring this thing to a close, is your doctrine sound? Is my doctrine sound? As a church, is our, is our doctrine sound? Some of you may, may have had this experience, maybe you're experiencing now, you're reading authors or listening to people that maybe you shouldn't listen to because it's, it's false. And I, I, you could take this out from beyond the realm of theology and what we know of God, even just into the general society. Gossip sites, things we can, uh, rabbit trails we can go down on social media. Are we feeding ourselves what's false? Um, a couple weeks ago when Jeremy was up north at his parents and uh, his, his dad had just had his um, kidney removed because of cancer, continue to pray uh, for that situation. His dad was supposed to have a, an appointment with the oncologist to deal with the cancer that's in the lungs and because of insurance uh, reasons, he's got to find a new oncologist all of a sudden. And so just please pray for Jeremy's dad. But, but he was there and he must have been really bored because he was looking at books. And uh, so he, he found this book and it was titled Rethinking Elders. And uh, so he was like, hey, you, have you read this one since we've been talking about that a lot? And I'm like, no, I've, I've never heard of that one. And so he said, I'll, I'll, I'll try to bring it back. And so he gave it to me, last, that was just last Sunday. And he's like, something's off <laughs> as he handed it to me. He's like, it, it's, it makes you think a little bit, but it's, there, there's something quite off with, with this. You, you just kind of check it out and stuff. And so of course I checked it out and yeah, guy's got a big ax he's trying to grind on certain issues and misses key things. But that's what I'm talking about. Jeremy is grounded in what is sound. And what is true. And so as he's, he's reading that, he's going, that, that just doesn't seem quite right. There's something wrong with this. That's the work that the Spirit does when we know and we're grounded in what is sound. We want to grow in that particular area. Because the deal with false teachers is 95% of the time, they sound really good. But it's the other 5% that matters. And we have to be very careful and discerning. How about this one? Does your life prove your doctrine is sound? With what you profess to believe about Jesus, with what you profess to believe about the Spirit's work in your life, does your life prove that? Is there a disconnect between what you profess to believe and the actions that are produced. What you say is the, the root and the foundation of my life and the fruit that your life produces. This week I want to challenge you. Read ahead to what Jordan read through in the rest of this chapter. Consider those, those qualities that he's encouraging in those different groups of people. And don't limit yourself and say, well, I'm not a, I'm not a younger woman, so I don't really have to look at those. Because again, there are qualities... They're characteristics of what it is to be like Jesus. Paul is just focusing in on the different groups and particularly things that were problematic on the island of Crete. And so he's addressing those particular issues. It's not an exhaustive list. But I want to challenge you to do that. Read ahead. Consider those things before we dive in and look at them next week. Um, earlier this week, uh, we, were, we were sitting in our, our bedroom and 
uh, I was playing my new Switch. I got, I got my own Switch. I told my kids, I've been saving my money for a long time. And uh, I'm like, you guys ruined the old Switch. I'm going to get my own Switch, and you can't touch it. And so I was playing my own little Switch, and Faith had some HGTV on. And uh, it was some guys from Massachusetts who restore, like, old homes. I don't think we'd ever, have you ever watched that one? I'd never watched that. Anyway, they, they, were, they were talking to the guys like, man, look at this. Look at this door. This door is really old. It's a really old Christian door. And, of course, that got me looking up like, a Christian door? We got Christian everything now. Like Christian candy bars, Christian shirts, whatever. I was like, a Christian door? What are they talking about? And sure enough, he, he pointed out the door and, and the particulars about the door and said, here's, here's why it's called a Christian door. Amos, you want to throw that picture up there? It's called a Christian door because on the top, between those panels, you can see a cross. And on the lower part, the two panels represent an open Bible. And I thought, what? We both looked up at my closet door right in front of us. It's a Christian door. Her closet, it's a good, our house is full of Christian doors. It's amazing. A door that, a door that shows, to, and now it'll be that thing like, you remember the, the, first, the first time somebody pointed out there's an arrow in the FedEx symbol? Now every time I look at a FedEx symbol, I'm like, arrow, arrow, arrow. I don't even see FedEx anymore. That's what we're going to be looking for. Is that a Christian door or not a Christian door? But I was thinking as I was working on the sermon, you know, if a door, if a door can display the gospel of Christ with a cross and an open Bible, surely we who possess the spirit of Christ can show it and display it. And that's what Paul's arguing here. That's what he's pointing us to. Let your life show the cross of Christ and the difference that it's made. Let your life be as an open Bible that displays who Jesus is to the world around you. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Who and how will you shine the light of Christ this week? Who are you going to show it to? How are you going to show it? Are you here today and you say, I don't know if I've believed the true gospel. That, that whole cart beside the horse thing, that kind of resonated with what I think. I think it's about works. And then Jesus comes along and helps. Friends, that's not the true gospel. That's a hopeless message. The, the hopeful message is it's Christ and Christ alone. He saves. He does the work. If you haven't believed that today, I, I encourage you. Find freedom in believing that message. If you have questions, please come see us as we'll have a time of prayer in just a moment. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you need to cut out some unsound teaching in your life. There's things that you shouldn't be engaging in. And maybe for, for all of us, I think we could ask the question, how can I grow in my doctrine? How can I grow in understanding what is sound? What is right? What are some things that maybe I could add into my life that would, would benefit me in growing to be more sound in my doctrine? Would you bow with me this morning? I'm